Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Buddy, Senior Research Scholar in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology in Chicago. Murder, torture, and intimidation, blacklisting, bribery, wholesale displacement of communities. Welcome to the politics of mining and what gets visited upon persons brave enough to stand against the wealth and power of global mining conglomerates. Around the world, mining remains one of the most dangerous of modern occupations. And around the world, becoming known as an opponent of mining is among the most dangerous of modern roles. Joining me today is Andres McKinley, a water and resources expert at the University of Central America in El Salvador. Born in the United States, Andres has spent 40 years living in Africa and Latin America, working alongside marginalized communities on matters of human rights, ecological integrity, and sustainable de development. He spoke recently at DePaul University on the politics of mining and the role of the church as a guest of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology. Andres, welcome and thank you for, thank you for joining us. Okay, uh, thank you very much for having me and allowing me to talk about this subject that is so crucial to countries like El Salvador. Well, as a place to start, um, if you could give us sort of a, an overview of the, the breadth and significance of mining questions around the world, they seem to be challenges facing people all over the world in very different contexts. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major part of the world economy and one that uh, is often, it seems, working sort of off the, off the, the radar screen of many people uh, in, their everyday, in their everyday awareness. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the first things you have to understand about mining when you talk about the global level is that mining is part of a, uh, of a concept um, uh, for development, for economic growth. It it's, it's, it's forms the central feature in what we call the extractive model for economic growth, and this is the dominant model being applied in developing countries around the world and in, in developed countries as well. Um, and it's basically based on the idea of extracting natural resources and commercializing these natural resources with very little added value, very little processing. Um, and so you have countries like uh, Bolivia and uh, Peru Ecuador, Colombia, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, uh, and all of the countries almost in Africa and, and other parts around the world, in Asia, Indonesia, um, trying to uh, uh, or, or buying into this idea that uh, mining is a way of promoting sustainable development and assuring economic growth. Um, and what we find in reality, uh, you know, in my years uh, working on issues related to mining, the central question for me and the organizations that I always worked with was, does mining support a process of sustainable development or not? Uh, that's the central question, you know, and that brings you to study the impact of mining on nearby communities to uh, massive mining projects and to uh, regional and national economies uh, uh, on human lives and, and begin to analyze 
the impact of mining from the standpoint of sustainable development. There are international mining organizations, associations that are constantly in a process of promoting mining as an industry that now has developed technology that is no longer damaging to the environment. They insist on mining as an industry that now respects human rights. Uh, they, they, they put it forth as an industry that generates income for governments, for strategic areas of development, especially in education and health, and as a source of economic boom for local communities, primarily through the provision of jobs. Uh, and th this is, these are the arguments that uh, international uh, mining companies always make in, in their effort to convince the world, convince countries, uh, and convince communities that mining is a good thing and mining uh, is a source of, for, for promoting sustainable development. But, but, but when you look at the pattern uh, of mining around the world, you see something very differently. Uh, and this is, uh, again, with the different organizations that I've worked with over the years, is the reason that led us um, to question so strongly uh, the impact of mining uh, on processes of, of uh, sustainable development. And in cases like El Salvador, to assume or support, I should say, the radical position of Salvadoran people uh, against metallic mining, because we found that all of these promises, these myths um, that international mining companies were putting forth are false. It's interesting that you talk about the the, re, the remaking of the image of mining companies worldwide, the attempt to present themselves as being ecologically responsible and good corporate citizens and so on. Um, for people who, who, who haven't seen what contemporary mining looks like up close, can you describe what you've seen? Um, are we talking about contained high technology ventures that leave a very small footprint or are we talking about something altogether different? Uh, if you look at the propaganda that mining companies put out, you would see images of very clean laboratory scenes with, with computers and, you know, equipment that allows them to detect, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, availability of mineral resources uh, in the Earth's surface and gain access to those uh, minerals with uh, with, without generating much damage to the environment. You, you get this image of mining as a clean, uh, sophisticated, technically uh, harmonious process with the environment. But when you go around and visit uh, mining projects and, and in the organizations that I've worked with, primarily with Oxfam America in the early years of the struggle, um, you know, I was able to... Uh, get to know mining in all of the communities uh, of the countries of Central America, uh, in Peru, in uh, Ecuador, in Colombia, Bolivia, uh, as well as African countries in Ghana and um, este, in Ghana, Senegal, Liberia, uh, 
And, and the pattern uh, that you see there is a much, it, it portrays a much dirtier image, if you will, uh, where, you know, you have, to, you have to begin by understanding that the deposits of minerals and metals uh, in the uh, surface, on the surface of our planet, uh, today tend to be very low concentration. You know, mining has been going on for thousands of years uh, in our planet, around the planet. And so the deposits of minerals, especially minerals like gold and silver, tend to be very low concentration. Uh, in the case of a country like El Salvador, mining companies came into this country and other countries of Central America with the hope of mining uh, gold and silver in concentrations of approximately six grams, or, or sorry, a gram of gold per uh, every uh, per ton of rock, uh, which meant that you know they would be processing over. 20 tons of rock to get enough gold or silver to make a finger ring. Uh, so the, the, the point that I want to make is the technology that is required uh, to mine these uh, low uh, concentrations of minerals and, and metals is extremely damaging to the environment. There's no secret technology. There's nothing new on the face of the earth that allows transnational mining companies to gain access and extract uh, these materials without harming the environment. Just to, just to mention a few of the steps, I mean, the, and it's, 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 you can apply logic to this to understand it. Uh, there's, there's no way of getting access uh, to gold and silver deposits, for example, without cutting down the forest. And of course, in a country like El Salvador that only has 3% of its original forest uh, intact today, that's a major issue. Uh, the second step is removing the topsoil, soil that could be used for agricultural purposes or forestry. Um, the third step is beginning to penetrate the earth uh, using explosive devices, heavy equipment, and creating these gigantic open pits. Over 70% of gold mining and silver mining around the world today is uh, open pit mining. Uh, in the old days, you know, the old uh, prospectors showed up with their mule and began digging holes that, that generated uh, harmful impacts on the environment, but nothing compared to the dimension of uh, the impact of mining operations today. So, you know, so that's, in, and in that respect, it's similar to coal mining in, in whereas rather than shaft mining, it's now mountaintop removal. Exactly. Just, just, just blow the blow the entire <laughs> thing away. And and that raises the question, speaking about just ma the material practices, if you need 20 tons of, of earth process to get, you know, a, a, an ounce or two of gold, where does all that go? Where do the chemicals go? Where does the where does the the former mountain go or the 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 bedrock that's been that's been pulverized? Yeah, well, the toxic chemicals that are produced from mining go primarily into the water sources um, around the mine site. Uh, you have to remember, first of all, it's important to understand uh, when we talk about water 
sources, water resources, uh, and that was our main issue in the case of mining in El Salvador. Uh, metallic mining utilizes enormous quantities of water. In the case of Central America, the average gold mine was utilizing over a million liters of water per day. Uh, in the Marlin mine, one of the largest gold mines in Central America, according to the owners of the Marlin mine, they were using over six million liters of water per day. Uh, there are mines around the world in Kyrgyzstan and other, you know, other countries where they have these major, massive mining projects going on that utilize over 350 million liters of water per day. So that's that's uh, that's the first major concern one has to have about water, especially in a country. We can talk a little bit more in detail about this reality and in El Salvador uh, in a few minutes. But that's one of the main concerns that we always had about mining in a country like El Salvador, where this country is on uh, the brink of a situation of water stress in which there, there won't be enough water uh, to meet the demands of human beings uh, or, or, or sustain livelihoods in this country for, for much longer. Um, and then you have the problem of contamination that you alluded to with toxic uh, 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 chemicals that um, are, are utilized in mining. Of course, um, cyanide, sodium cyanide is the most well-known of those toxic chemicals. Uh, since concentrations of gold and silver are so low, you have to use processes like a, a cyanide a, a bathing the the uh, ore in solutions of uh, sodium cyanide in order to extract the gold from the rock. And what happens with that sodium cyanide? It 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 go, flows into the environment through many different sources. Uh, number one, it evaporates at. Uh, with the temperatures of uh, approximately 36 degrees centigrade, uh, sodium cyanide is evaporating into the air. Uh, oftentimes there are spills on mining sites where uh, sodium cyanide leaks into uh, surrounding uh, freshwater resources, contaminating those resources. And sodium cyanide is the chemical that is uh, highly toxic, it can kill a human being in quantities less than a grain of a rice. Um, so, so and, and mining companies use thousands of uh, gallons of, of sodium cyanide daily. Uh, also, there are uh, 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 toxic elements that come from the use of you know, gasoline and kerosene, uh, explosives produce and leave in the environment, toxic substances, and the mining process itself generates toxic substances, uh, especially in the case of acid mine drainage, a, a phenomena very common to gold and silver mining around the world. All of this in El Salvador, a country that has, by my understanding, the lowest availability of fresh water in Central America, the, the, the water sources are, are dependent upon 
uh, two or three major river sources, is that correct? Exactly. Uh, in the case of El Salvador, we depend on one major water river system, which is the Lempa River. Uh, and, and that river doesn't originate in El Salvador, it originates in uh, Guatemala, flows into Honduras, and then comes into El Salvador. And it's responsible for providing uh, water to almost 50% of uh, the territory of El Salvador for different uses, uh, for drinking water, for um, irrigation, agriculture, industry, uh, generation of electric power. Uh, so it's really a key water source. Uh, the future of El Salvador depends completely on the future of the Lempa River. So, um, of course, you know, and, and, and unfortunately or fortunately, uh, almost all of the deposits of gold and silver that were detected um, in, in earlier years in El Salvador are located in the watershed of the Lempa River. Mm -hmm. So all of that leads to sort of a collision. You've got the interests of the mining firms that cross the world looking for whatever deposits they can, they can find, a country with severe water quality and supply issues leading to an unprecedented policy move. Uh, of all places in, in, in the world, it's El Salvador that in 2017 passes a prohibition on metal mining. That, that would not have been the place outsiders would have looked first, I would expect, for <laughs> a line in the sand being being drawn. You you've been part of that movement from the from the beginning. How do you how do you put it into context? Well, you have to you know, transnational mining companies uh, have this belief that uh, mining uh, minerals are so important for development and growth. Uh, uh, around the world that it is illogical and unacceptable to prohibit metallic mining in any place uh, on the face of our planet. And our argument was always, you know, we're not uh, coming out against metallic mining or we're not questioning the importance of metals and minerals uh, for development, but what we are saying is that does not mean that you do metallic mining any place in the world. And El Salvador has a unique and dramatic situation with regards to its natural environment. Uh, the premier, the the the, the most uh, 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 obvious feature of that uh, crisis is is the situation of water, as you mentioned. Uh, Experts uh, like uh, members of CEPAL of the UN and and the International Tribunal of on Water, um, the the uh, International uh, Water Partnership, Global Water Partnership, sorry, have all come out. They're all respected international sources of analysis um, on water around the world, and they have all come out is stating that El Salvador, as you mentioned, is the country with the least availability of uh, freshwater resources in Central America and perhaps even in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. Uh, so, you know, there are studies that indicate that 
um, of the 360 most important rivers in this country, all of those rivers over the past 20 years have lost between 30 and 70 percent of their water level, of their water flow. Uh, other studies indicate that uh, strategic aquifers in El Salvador are going down uh, in their water levels approximately between half a meter and one meter per year. Uh, and you begin to see this phenomena visually as you drive through the countryside. Uh, over the years, I've been able to, uh, you know, understand this comparatively and, and see the effect of, you know, water levels going down in terms of desertification, the areas of the country turning into deserts and rivers that I once knew as, uh, you know, major raging uh, rivers, now just a, a slight flow or with nothing at all. Uh, and, and, you know, people, mainly poor people in the marginal communities uh, of El Salvador, experience this reality without the studies, without the experts. They live it every day. And, you know, more and more we're finding communities taking to the streets, blocking highways in protest because they've been uh, living for months without any a secure source of fresh water. So El Salvador is in, in a, a dramatic situation in, in that regard. But also, you know, in terms of uh, uh, forestry in this country, you know, the forest is essential for um, guaranteeing that rainwaters uh, penetrate the earth and, and recharge uh, aquifers and rivers and lakes. And that doesn't happen in El Salvador because most of the forests, the original forests have been cut down. Uh, the soils of El Salvador have been ruined by uh, 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 I'm looking for English words, <laughs> thinking in Spanish and talking to you in English, by, by centuries of you know, inappropriate agricultural practices. And so all of this combined, you know, it, it, it results in a situation in which although waterfall or rainfall over El Salvador is abundant, it does not penetrate the soil and, and recharge uh, freshwater uh, resources. It flows to the rivers and then through the rivers flows directly to the sea. And so, it seems to it seems to fuel one of the what I always thought is one of the more cynical aspects of the mining industry is to come in and destroy subsistence activities, whether in agriculture or if you're looking in western Alaska at fisheries, to come in and destroy those with then the subsequent offer of employment as some sort of a substitute for it, uh, which which is a which is a mockery in in so so many ways exactly exactly it's this short-term vision you know that they use this argument with communities and to me it's always uh, been a cruel argument because they come in to countries like El Salvador and they're talking with poor communities people who are in in a desperate need of employment and and they portray their industry as a source of employment and economic boom at the local level. Uh, uh, you know that that can convince 
uh, people who don't know a lot about mining quite quickly, uh, you know, in favor of mining. Um, and, and, and as you say, the cruel irony of that is uh, during the mining process, and you have to understand also, you know, large-scale industrial mining nowadays tends to be a shorter-term uh, investment. You know, the transnational companies come in, open their mind, they invest a lot of money, open their mind, extract uh, the minerals and leave. Uh, some of the mines in El Salvador have been projected for periods of between 9 and 15 years. Uh, 9 and 15 years is not enough time to generate an economic boom, a sustainable economic boom uh, in the areas where mining uh, has been carried out in, in Central American countries other than El Salvador. But it is, it is a long enough time to destroy traditional livelihoods. So, you know, after the mining companies close their doors, take the minerals, uh, the mineral wealth out of the country, close their doors, they leave communities without the ability to go back to agriculture because the waters are contaminated. They can't go back to fishing because the waters are contaminated. Uh, they can't go, they can't even go to uh, ecological tourism or, or other more uh, uh, modern alternatives for local uh, local livelihoods uh, because the environments, the aesthetics of, of their environment have been destroyed, you know. Nobody wants to visit a sacrifice zone. Those are not, <laughs> those are not popular among northern tourists. Exactly. Can you can can you talk about what is and is not covered by the new by the new law? Um, I understand it covers metal mining. Does it cover artisanal mining, small smallholders, non non metal mining? I'm not an expert on these things, but that yeah, yeah. Because of uh, all that we're talking about right now, um, the the mining the 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 proposal that was developed in 2016 by the UCA um, for the prohibition of metallic mining in El Salvador um, took a very radical approach to mining and we were calling for the prohibition of all forms of mining, we're calling on the prohibition of the use of all toxic chemical materials uh, required for mining and that included artisanal mining. There, there were groups uh, that had been struggling against mining for many, many years in El Salvador who had never really reached that level of radical uh, rejection of metallic mining. But the proposal of the UCA that was then supported by the Catholic Church um, and eventually won approval in the National Assembly uh, prohibits all forms of mining. Um, you know, subterranean mining, open pit mining, uh, artisanal mining, industrial mining, mining for all minerals and metals. We, our, our proposed law does not prohibit uh, non-metallic mining. We recognize, you know, mining, mining for gravel and mining for white sand and mining for um, cal for. Um, if I forget the term in English, I'm sorry, 
uh, uh, there's a number of materials that are necessary from the earth for construction purposes, uh, to make cement and this and that, and they're, they're damaging to the environment. They require regulation. Uh, but but we're not pushing to ban those activities. We're pushing to regulate them better. Uh, but what happened was during the debate um, within the National Assembly, within the Commission on Environment, one of the right-wing political parties who I, I'm assuming has a political base in the eastern part of El Salvador where they were doing artisanal mining, small-scale mining, insisted that we give those miners a two-year grace period. Um, you know, they accepted that, that uh, artisanal mining will be illegal uh, as well as uh, industrial mining, but, you know, give these people two years. We're talking about uh, a population of about 300 uh, small-scale artisanal miners operating in the eastern part of the country in an area where mining has uh, devastated the environment. I mean, mining uh, the acid uh, acid uh, mine drainage that has been generated by mining in that area has absolutely destroyed some of the major rivers and major sources of fresh drinking water. But it, much of the population there have been miners for generations, you know, their their grandparents were artisanal miners, their fathers were artisanal miners, and they're artisanal miners. And, you know, I have to say to you, my heart goes out to them because they're, they're workers. They're not, uh, you know, they're not thieves. They're not lazy. They're not asking for it. They, all they want to be able to do is continue mining, which is an activity uh, traditional to that area, and they're not transnational corporations coming in trying to rob the natural resource of another country. They're they're want to mine, you know, resources in their own backyard. So it's very complicated. And again, my, my heart goes out to them. On the other hand, um, we, we can and jeopardize, uh, you know, the well-being of six million Salvadorans for for this population. Um, and so we took a radical view, right-wing parties uh, who were willing to support uh, our ban on mining uh, insisted on a two-year grace period. And, you know, we agreed to that and the social organizations that uh, were working in alliance with us and the Catholic Church agreed to that. Uh, the problem is now two years have gone by since uh, the... Uh, you know, passage of our mining ban and artisanal mining is still going on in those areas. The government has not responded adequately. Uh, first of all, it hasn't responded adequately to the challenge of helping those communities discover and develop alternative uh, ways right. of uh, building livelihoods in that area, number one. But they haven't, you know, it calls for um, decisive measures now, you know, the 29th of March, this past 29th was the deadline. Uh, it, it, all mining should be illegal and, and anyone doing mining in that area at this point in time, you know, has to be 
uh, have to respond to now to there's the burden of now there's the burden of enforcement and, exactly. and implementation exactly. so how is it that how is it that the anti-mining coalition was able to prevail in el salvador <laughs> when you know mining mining companies were part of the movement to overthrow Allende in Chile. They stand behind the, the destruction in Congo. They, they, they get their way so many places. And yet, yeah. and yet in, El, in El Salvador, a popular, a popular movement has prevailed where no one else has. How do, you, uh -huh. how do you understand that or how do you explain that to the rest of us that look on with wonderment? Well, I think, uh, you know, there are objective components uh, and there are subjective components that you have to uh, consider when you ask that question. In, in terms of objective components, we're, we're talking about a, a situation that is so dramatic in terms of environmental deterioration that we've already spoken of. No? Uh, we had a situation in El Salvador that was unique. Um, and it's not to say that there are not other countries around the world who, who suffer from these same levels of uh, environmental deterioration, but it, it was an element. Uh, you know, Salvadorans understood. We, we, we made an, an enormous effort to educate and inform uh, Salvadorans in the early part of our struggle. Uh, about uh, environmental deterioration, about the importance of uh, natural resources for the future of this country, for the viability of this country. We made an enormous effort to educate communities about their rights, their human rights in terms of protecting their natural resources, etc. So, um, you know, that was, that, was, but a, that was a special component, I would say, in objective terms that uh, was, you could consider it an advantage for us. Uh, the other thing is, um, for some reason, historically, uh, the traditional oligarchies of El Salvador, the, the bourgeoisie, the, the, the wealthy classes, of this country never became heavily invested in metallic mining. Um, people didn't know much about metallic mining, as I said before here. Uh, El Salvador didn't have a long, strong history of mining like countries like Peru and Bolivia, Ecuador, Colombia, and even Guatemala, Honduras, you know. Those countries have a much uh, stronger, longer, uh, history of with metallic mining, and they have the wealthy classes uh, of those countries invested in mining. So when you begin to, um, you know, when you begin to put forth ideas like uh, prohibiting metallic mining, you are met with uh, an enormous resistance because of the economic interests in play on the but part of. But in um, Salvador, the national. The national economic investor class hadn't hadn't been hadn't been deeply steeped in mining and therefore had less less at stake personally. Exactly, exactly, and and, nice. and uh, it was primarily transnational corporations who were coming in. That's not to say that there weren't people from the private sector who were looking at this industry as a potential area for investment. We know that there were large investment groups. 
um, in El Salvador who were toying with the idea, you know, our fear always was that they enter into an alliance with an international uh, mining company, with a transnational corporation, and, and invest together. You know, the transnational yeah. corporation puts the know-how, uh, the, the uh, business classes of El Salvador put the, the money. Uh, that, that was always one of our greatest fears, but it, it never happened. So, I mean, the, objectively speaking, that's the environment that we were uh, working in that was somehow advantageous to us. You know, we, we took advantage of this dramatic situation of the environment, uh, made people understand that when you talk about metallic mining in El Salvador, you're talking about a life or death issue. This is not just one more economic debate on El Salvador. This is a debate on whether or not this country is going to have a future, whether or not younger generations are going to be able to find, build their livelihoods here, or whether the only option they're going to have is pack their bags and head north. That's, that's objectively. There are many important factors subjectively. In other words, they have more to do with movement building. It has to do with empowerment. Um, you know, many of us from the very beginning, uh, actually, I don't consider myself an expert on mining. I, I, <laughs> I, I, like many other people here, tried to make ourselves uh, as experts as possible. Uh, but, but I'm more of an expert in public policy advocacy. And, and after, you know, almost 50 years of development initiatives around the world, I, I consider myself to have some expertise in sustainable development. Uh, but the, the, point, the point is there were a number of us who from the very beginning, you have to understand also that Central America in general tends to be a highly politicized region of the world. <laughs> People are, you know, very, very political here. There's a legacy um, of... There's a legacy of mobilization on, on all different different levels. Exactly. Necessity of, and otherwise. Yeah. Exactly. Legacy of mobilization and struggle. And at the beginning, you know, where, where mining companies were trying to um, insert themselves in the early years, back in, you know, as early as 1996, 97, uh, they were coming into communities that had suffered a lot during the war. Uh, who were still well organized, uh, they became organized around the war effort, and they considered their lands to be um, to be uh, what's the word sacred. Yeah. Uh, you know, they 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 still say, you know, our lands are are bathed in the blood of our ancestors, and so you know those. You you don't fight a you don't fight no, a recent, no, a recent you don't. war only to hand it over to Canadian yeah, I, or Australian. Exactly. War. You know, I knew I knew very early in the struggle uh, that the that there was not going to be any mining going on in Chilatenango. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we more. didn't have we didn't have to do much organizing, but but we had a clear strategic vision of how to build a movement. Uh, you know, based on uh, this logic of empowerment and empowerment, you know, they talk so much about empowerment today, but we had, you know, we had very specific things in mind when we talk about empowering 
the citizens of El Salvador, especially the communities, the most affected community, but all of the citizens, because mining was a theme that was going to impact the lives of all of the citizens in this little uh, country of El Salvador. And that meant, first of all, educating, you know, informing, developing educational materials, you know, giving public forums, workshops, organizing, mobilizing, it meant building links between the local community struggles uh, in defense of the environment and our national struggle for prohibition. Uh, because we recognize that local struggles are, can't win, uh, you know, without uh, being connected to broader national goals and broader national struggles and broader national struggles can't win either or not sustainable if they don't build themselves on the basis of the local community struggles. So that was another element um, very powerful in our initiatives. Uh, we always insisted that our struggle be nonviolent. Uh, you know, this country, as you well know, comes out of a long history of violence uh, way before the Civil War, starting with 50 years of military dictatorship. And, and the struggles to democratize the country and the search for, uh, you know, uh, social justice uh, through any means possible, as, as, as desperate as those means may be. Um, and so we were, we were um, all uh, adamant about maintaining our struggle nonviolent. Uh, you know, we had to find new ways, more intelligent ways of doing politics in El Salvador. And so our, our battle was a battle of ideas. Uh, we always had enormous uh, uh, confidence in, that truth would, uh, would win over lies, the lies of the campaigns of mining corporations. You know, we knew that uh, truth would win over that. And we built into, into this, uh, you know, overall environment of the logic of public policy advocacy, which means, uh, you know, you just, you're not just out in the street saying no to mining. Uh, you, you want to struggle this based on proposals, not just protest. Uh, so we, you know, we're always heavily focused on developing policy proposals and pushing those policy proposals in the decision-making spaces like the National Assembly or the Commission on, on Environment, where the decisions on policy were being made. Um, and, and, that and, and that leads me to two other questions before I let you go. I know you're busy. I can hear the, I can hear the traffic <laughs> and the birds in the Capitol behind you. Um, <laughs> another, another busy day in the capital city. Um, <laughs> can, you, can you talk briefly about the role of the church in the struggle, and I'm particularly interested in how you managed to overcome the divisions within the church itself to to mobilize as effectively as was done. Is this analogous to the business community not having a stake in uh, in mining historically, or is this some other some other way you were able to find to bridge some of the the sort of more long term cleavages uh, in the church community itself? Yeah, I, I think the Catholic Church, in the case of El Salvador, realized early on the threat that metallic mining really meant to this country. They got it. Uh, 
they, they, they got that uh, message quite early. You know, the Bishop of Chilatenango uh, in 97, 98 was already coming out publicly against uh, metallic mining. Uh, the Archbishop, um, a very conservative uh, Opus Dei Archbishop uh, from Spain, he, he understood the threat of metallic mining because he was a chemist and he understood the threat of uh, cyanide, you know, to a society as closely knit as the Salvadoran. And then his follower, um, uh, Monsignor Escobar Alas, maintained that, that anti-mining position. And the Episcopal Conference came together in 2007 and put out a, a, a communique to the population of El Salvador called uh, let's take care of our common home, cuidemos la casa de todos, uh, in which they expressed the official view of the uh, uh, Catholic Conference uh, against mining. So, you know, the Catholic Church in El Salvador, although, um, you know, I'm not saying everyone was on board within the church or that all of the church authorities were in favor of a ban on mining, but the Catholic Church has a long uh, history of accompaniment um, of the people in El Salvador, so they're highly respected and they're sensitive to some of these issues. But we had to convince them too. I mean, it was a matter of, you know, educating and, and informing and, and building alliances with these different forces in the country in order to gain this, this ban. Which leads then to the the... I guess the last question that I will bother you with is how do you protect the gains that have been won? You can expect countermeasures. I'm sure you've already seen some questions about how to undermine maybe implementation. How do, having, having staked out this territory, uh, <laughs> where does one go from here? Well, we're, we're very clear that um, you know, mining companies uh, feel very threatened by our ban on mining, and not not particularly because of the gold and silver that they're losing from not being able to mine in El Salvador, but more because of the precedent that uh, this policy decision makes for countries, for communities, for regions of the world, you know. Uh, uh, again, going back to this concept that uh, minerals and, and metals are important, but that doesn't mean you do mining anywhere uh, in the world. And there are important criteria that have to be taken into consideration. So I think, uh, I think uh, you know, organizations like the International Council on Mining and Metals, ICMM, uh, you know, they feel very threatened. Uh, and they're, I'm sure they're looking for... The threat for of a good example is always a danger. But... Yes, exa exactly. This is... Uh, you know, this is a precedent for for other communities and other countries that uh, are confronting the same levels of violation of human rights, the same levels of environmental deterioration. Um, indigenous peoples around the world are, you know, looking at this uh, victory in El Salvador and, you know, learning lessons from it. Um, uh, and And, you know, we're, we're uh, very vigilant right now in terms of the application of our law and 
the you know this law now has been regulated you know there are uh, there's more detail in in the requirements of government uh, to apply this law fully and as i mentioned earlier there are several areas which they're failing uh, so we're pushing you know for we want government to first of all apply the law you know that means no more metallic mining um, but, you know, there are 300 families, depending on metallic mining in that area, you've got to get in there and help them build uh, economic alternatives. And you have to clean up the mess uh, that mining has made. There are approximately 15 uh, mid-scale uh, subterranean mines still open around El Salvador. Uh, and these mines have to be closed technically. Uh, they have to, you know, there has to be a technically responsible uh, closure to, to mining and recuperation of the forests, of, of rivers and streams that have been affected. And, and, uh, and so that's, you know, and, and that's the doorway uh, we're afraid that's the doorway the transnational corporations will choose to try to reopen the debate. You know, they can easily go to these uh, uh, artisanal miners in the eastern part of El Salvador, begin to support them, uh, give them motivation, give them resources, give them technical assistance, etc., etc. You know, just as an effort yeah. to, first of all, reopen the debate, probably with the hope of reforming our law at first to extend this uh, uh, grace period, you know, and then maybe uh, what I could imagine is them arguing that we should establish an exception to the law, a permanent exception in the eastern part of the country, allow artisanal mining to continue there, and then, you know... Allowing they, them, they, in fact, then to partner with external in exactly, interests coming in. Exactly, exactly. Well, having having been the leader thus far, it's it, it seems clear that people will continue to look to the people of El Salvador for leadership and guidance, not only in, in this sector, but in related areas as well. Andres McKinley, thank you for your time, and uh, thank, you for, thank you for your work on behalf of the people of El Salvador. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the so-called Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Greg Barker, Anna Gallen, Francis Salinel, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism on the web, Facebook, or Twitter.